The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of Tune. Well, today we have a very special guest. I am really honored to have Lynn Jackson, who's president and founder of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation and Dred Scott Lives. She's the great-great-granddaughter of Harriet and Dred Scott, notable of the Dred Scott decision in 1857. And Lynn is president and founder, as I said, of that Heritage Foundation. The foundation's goal is to promote the commemoration, education, and reconciliation of our history with an eye towards helping to heal the wounds of the past. She has a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Marketing from Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. She was the Business Operations Director for the Girl Scout Council of Greater St. Louis. She had administrative positions at the Ford Motor Company, Cass Logistics, and was Manager of General Services at Brian Cave LLC Law Firm until 2009. Now she travels around the country sharing the history of this landmark case. She helped with the erection of the first statue of Harriet and Dred Scott, designed and created by sculptor Harry Weber, which stands currently outside the old courthouse yep. in St. Louis, Missouri. Lynn, welcome to In Tune. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, tell us a little more about you. I read a little bio, but tell us the genealogical description of Dred and Harriet, and whether you were Eliza or mm. trying to think Lizzie. of... Right. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, forgive me, I might have a little froggy throat this morning. I You're hope good. It's not bad. <clears throat> but uh, truly, uh, we have a, a little interesting, I guess, kink in the story. Um, Dred and Harriet, if I can start with them. Absolutely. They met at Fort Snelling, which was an Army outpost in uh, Minnesota, which is Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul area now, but it was the Northwest Territories. And they met there and got married in 1836. Um, They had a daughter. And honestly, I believe they had two sons. I don't know where the boys were born, but it wasn't in St. Louis. So surely they probably were born there. And uh, yet the two babies, they died. Uh, They did not live. And we don't have any actual information on them except for that Dred mentions that he had two boys. However, third, uh, the fourth child was also a girl. The first one was Eliza. The second one was Lizzie. The uh, first daughter was born on a riverboat called the Gypsy, and she was born on the Mississippi River. Wow. So we like to say that she was born free. Right. Uh-huh. But so goes the mother, so goes the child. Right. Therefore, she was not. But there are eight years between the two girls. That's why I think the boys are in, in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Um, the second girl, Lizzie was born in St. Louis, and the way I've got it figured out with my research, because it kind of hit me one day, she had to have been born between January 1st and March 1st, and March 1st is late, of 1846, because on April the 6th of 1846, they went to the courthouse and filed to sue. And she was born in 1846, and when they went there, she was born. So I now know that her birthday was either January or February okay. of 1846. So the two daughters grew. The older daughter actually passed away before the younger daughter. And we always thought that she only had two boys. 
And those two boys were named John and Harry. John is my grandfather. Harry, his brother, we're not positively sure that either he died or he just left. But there's been no trace of him anywhere. Mm. So it's, it is presumed for the most part and always has been that he, he did die. But John, the surviving one child of the oldest daughter, Eliza, our grandfather, married Grace Cross. And Grace Cross and John Madison had seven children. And our dad is the sixth of those seven kids. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. They're fine. The only surviving child right now is our Aunt Alma, who will be 92 this year in Chicago. Oh, wow. So uh, having had those seven children and several of them having had children, I am not the only descendant and only great-great-grandchild at all. I have a, a brother and a sister, and I had another brother who passed away. So um, <clears throat> there are probably, I get this question all the time, I don't know a perfect answer. There may be between 40 and 55 descendants right now. Wow. And, I, and that might be on the high side because, uh, you know, people are leaving us. But, but the uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren were still around. So I always tell people that Dred Scott's grandson is my grandfather. And I think that makes it easier for people to make that quicker connection there. Right, right. And then you also feel like it's not that far away. Right. Yeah. It wasn't just no. that long ago. It's not really. You know? So the little kink I was telling you about comes this way, that we were always told, and my, my parents and, and uh, my dad's generation were always told that Lizzie married Wilson Madison. And that's where the kids came from. So Lizzie was the youngest, mm -hmm. and Eliza did die earlier. She was barely 40 when she passed away. But we have found since then, and I shared this book with you earlier, the information is all in here in the Dread and Harriet Scott, their family storybook, which we have available through our website. This book shows the genealogy of the children of the older daughter, not the younger daughter. Hmm. And all of their records of their names and their births are documented. So even though we were told that Lizzie married Wilson, it was Eliza that married Wilson. Hmm. And we wow. only found this out in 2006. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of um, people who were in my dad's generation, they never did hear the correction. Hmm. But that, that was a little stunning to us. But then not only that, we found out that she had more children. And they, unfortunately, did also die as infants. But all of their death records are here as well. Oh, that's great. So there are you know, a few other little surprises there, but um, that is how I am descended from Dred and Harriet's. Now, did she live in St. Louis? Did the family remain in St. Louis, or did they move? Or Oh, yeah, they remained here. And when my uh, grandmother and grandfather got married, she was from Cairo, Illinois. Okay. But they actually got married in East St. Louis for some reason, but they lived in St. Louis. So all of her children, all the great-grandchildren were born in St. Louis, and um, many of the great-grandchildren. But we were pretty dispersed out now. We're in Chicago and New York and Florida and Kansas City and Texas and Missouri. Now, what was, it, what was it like to discover that your grandfather's, how did you say this, your grandfather's? 
My grandfather is Dred Scott's grandson. Right, that, that your grandfather was Dred Scott's grandson. How, how, when, when, did, when did that kind of dawn on you? When were you told or when did you realize this since like this light bulb's like, holy smokes. You know, I, I work with a lot of descendants and we all agree that that's the question we get the most. <laughs> when did we realize it? And um, for me, it was in, uh, I guess I was four. Um, there was just this big to-do down at the old courthouse and it was a time when many people were there to commemorate an anniversary. Uh, my dad played Dred Scott. It was nighttime, a lot of lights, a lot of cameras. Uh, the newspapers were there and all wow. our family from out of town. So I, I knew clearly something big was going on, and I knew the name Dred Scott. You know, at four, I didn't quite get it, you know, but um, but not long after that, of course, we understood. But I don't think any of us understood until we were more grown because mm -hmm. even people who teach and study this history don't quite all know how important it was or the impact. They know what they get. But if you don't get the whole picture, you miss you miss the whole impact of it. I, I think that's an excellent illustration of the whole case because it starts way before the Supreme Court case, and which is most what most people recognize, uh, the 1857 decision. But it started way way before that, and it was the result of the interaction of a lot of events that were going on, especially in St. Louis and. I should say between St. Louis and Missouri and between the North and the South and pro-slavery and anti-slavery and abolitionists right. and anti-abolitionists. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, politicking going on with, with a lot of that as well as uh, I, would, I would say moral decision-making that needed to be checked. That's right. It's very Good way integrated it. and very complex, actually. I share with people sometimes that uh, this... U.S. Supreme Court decision of April 6, 1857, what, I'm sorry, March 6 of 1857, was uh, about 80 pages long. And most Supreme Court decisions are somewhere between six and 10 pages. That's crazy. It is crazy. And they read them out loud, so it was read for almost two hours or so. Uh, but also, you made a point there that it started long ago. Um, all the factions involved go all the way back to, you know, the 1700s. But Dredd and Harriet's story starts when they decide that because Mrs. Emerson, who was the widow of their army surgeon owner who died, because she would not give them their freedom because she knew that they had been in free territory, and she actually came along after they were owned by Dr. Emerson— and neither would she let them buy their freedom. They offered her $300 plus, you know, some more right. collateral right. to come. And she said no. Uh, because of that, they, they petitioned on April 6th of 1846. And it took 11 years and five court proceedings for them to find out that they were not going to get freedom. So, you know, when you back that up and think about Somebody waiting for going to court with a traffic right. ticket, and it's right. like, oh God, three weeks from now, you know. Think about waiting eleven years, and not just that, because you know, I mean, I, there's we're going to dance all around this and hit it from wherever we are. But the original case was a mistrial, right? They did which not, not many people know. <clears throat> that's right. They did not <gasps> produce a witness who could verify that Mrs. 
Emerson owned them. And they had to establish that because how are you going to free somebody if they don't actually own them? Okay. Okay, people yeah. are thinking it like that. But it's like, first things first. Did she own them? Okay, establish that. Okay, now, why would she free them? How how can they sue, et cetera? So the witness to that effect said that my wife said that she owned them. And that's hearsay. So out. But the judge was kind enough to say, you know, get your act together and come back. Right. You know, I was really, when I was doing research on this, and I, I knew the 1857 decision, and I knew that there had been some previous trials, because obviously you just don't go right to the Supreme Court. Right. But what amazed me was the interaction of big names in St. Louis mm -hmm. and how they are all connected, like mm -hmm. um, the Blow family or the Shoto family mm -hmm. or the Field Sanford's. family, mm -hmm. you know, Roswell mm -hmm. Field, Eugene Field, yeah. um, and how they were all interconnected. But the one thing that I really was not aware of, and I want to have you speak to this, was that there had been a pattern of behavior in Missouri that was part of the Constitution that if a slave was taken to a free territory and then brought back, they could petition the court for their freedom, and Missouri would grant that, and that had happened previously many, many times. And so what uh, Dred and Harriet Scott had done was to follow that same pattern and you know, you had the mistrial, then you had another trial which took mm -hmm. place, and they were given their freedom, and then Yeah, well, actually Emerson, by a jury of 12 white men. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, which was notable. huge. <laughs> That's huge. very notable. That's right. And then... Um, Unanimously. There was uh, the uh, verdict that was tossed up then to federal court from... Well, it went on appeal because right? Ms. Emerson was not going to just sit down and take right. that. Her father, as you talk about notable people, if you... Yes. You may. Uh, is uh, Mr. Sanford, who helped to establish the pro-slavery society in St. Louis. Which was huge at that and time. And were friends of the Chateau family and so forth. Right. Uh, so, yes, that wasn't going to go down easy, and it didn't. And he actually owned what he called a, like, a quote-unquote plantation. Summer place. <laughs> up in, in Bridgeton. Which That's, is where the airport is. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Good, yeah. good thing right. to happen to that right there. Yeah, right. the airport. Yeah, exactly. So, and that was way out back then. Oh, oh yes. Oh, my God. It was way oh, sure. out. Oh, my, yes. I feel for them how much they had to walk or whatever they did. Cause, Those horses. They really yeah. got to wear. Oh, <laughs> I think, yeah. I think oh. the slaves were walking in most cases. Oh, man. I, yeah. I also, uh, of how his particular, uh, Colonel Sanford, his particular influence, even though he really... He kind of spent a lot of time back east, and there were a lot of people like that, but they had some kind of influence in St. Louis. They really stirred the pot and stirred it with not necessarily the St. Louis politicians, but the state politicians, who then changed the judiciary kind of thought process, which mm -hmm. then, as, as uh, Dred and Harriet's case went through the judicial system, then they got that negative Supreme Court decision. Right. Oh, yeah. On March 22nd of 1852, the Missouri Supreme Court said that times are not as they once were when we used to decide these cases, and uh, paraphrasing, so you won't be getting your freedom here. And what you just alluded to was the fact that when they started it, keep in mind, 1846, 1852, that's six years. Yeah. Six years. And over those six years, politically, the two pro, I'm sorry, well, let's say it right, the two anti-slavery 
out of three mm-hmm. judges that were on the Missouri Supreme Court were now two pro-slavery judges. Mm-hmm. And the two pro-slavery judges said no. And that is where it ended until Roswell Field. But let's back up a minute because you were saying something about um, Mr. Sanford. Oh, once free, always free. Going back right. to how it was that they were able to right. um, to petition. All right, so uh, two things. Dredd and Harriet met at Fort Snelling, I said earlier. Dredd was there because the Blow family had to sell some quote-unquote property to cure debts as the mother had died shortly after they got to St. Louis and the father was ill and he died about a year later. So within that year, there was a lot of change. One of the daughters got married to a prominent St. Louisan and, you know, they were growing up, but everything was was changing. And Dredd had grown up with uh, some of these uh, children, of which there were 11, believe it or not, 11 blow children were were born. Um, And uh, so they, they... really actually did not belabor him as Southern slaves were on plantations so much so. But any slave is a slave and always is supposed to know their place. However, um, the children were were anti-slavery. They never owned any slaves. And they understood and must have loved the character and the person of Dred Scott or they wouldn't have done the things that they did. But they were behind him from the beginning. Which is a unique thing, right, right? Very unique as well. But I don't know how they would have fared beyond the Missouri Supreme Court, or even up to it actually, because they were very proactive at first. After Missouri Supreme Court decision, they probably were going like, "Wow, this just isn't working." Oh, yeah. But they did not give up on them. It's just that it had gone to another level. But the once free, always free. Uh, it's like an eighteen oh seven doctrine that was here in Missouri at the time, and after selling him to Dr. Emerson and him taking him not only to to Fort Snelling, but first to Fort Armstrong in Illinois, right. which was also free territory. Right. Okay. So this makes his case even stronger. I would say. You can't just walk through in a day and say, I'm in I'm free. You have to have resided there for a bit at least. And so he did in both cases. And Harriet having been brought here by Major Tolliver, who was an army justice of the peace and an Indian agent from Pennsylvania. And she originally was, we believe, from Virginia as well. But they both ended up in Fort Snelling in the Wisconsin territories in free territory. So after they married and come to St. Louis, he dies. And I have an inkling, I don't say this often, but I have a slight inkling that perhaps the doctor might have been thinking of giving Dredd his freedom. Hmm when they got back or at some point. But that's another story I'm still researching. But I think that could have been because people ask, well, why did they come back? Or why didn't they run away? And running away wasn't an option for for someone who you know, believed that they had those rights and that they had a wife and they had a child and the chances of getting away with that uh-huh. are very difficult. And I have some wonderful stories about people and how they were so ingeniously able to get free. You have to, you can't, Always just walk away. Now they say Harriet Tubman just walked away at one point, and, and maybe that's all there is to it, but it doesn't go down that easily. And if you have infant children, you, you don't necessarily want to jeopardize right. that. And, and thinking that perhaps in St. Louis they may just be able to cut ties. But he died, and it didn't happen. So um, once free, always free. Now one thing I did learn over the course of years was that when he 
did sue for his freedom. Well, those terms make it seem like I want my freedom, right? Mm -hmm. But he had his freedom. He was suing to be able to actualize his freedom. To have a paper. To say, look, I am free, and I'm in Missouri now. Right. This man has died, and I want my freedom, and she won't let us go. So that was why the petition was available to them. And other people who sued for their freedom, sometimes in the owner's will, he'll say, when I die, I want my slaves to be set free. And then the children go, ah, dad wasn't really in his right mind. I'm not so sure we're going to be doing that. And then the slave may have papers to that effect. And I've known of situations where people's papers were torn up from them. Well, we're going to we're going to talk more about those papers oh, wow. because that's another interesting fact that uh, <laughs> slaves in St. Louis and free blacks in St. Louis that we'll get to after the break. We've been talking to Lynn Jackson. She's the great great granddaughter of Dred and Harriet Scott, or the her grandfather was Dred Scott and Harriet Scott's grandson. Yeah. Another way to put that. You learn well. <laughs> we we learn that right now. So you're listening to In Tune. This is Arnold Strucker with Mark Langston of In Tune. This is KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been talking to Lynn Jackson, who's president and founder of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. And prior to our break, we were talking about papers, and we were talking about a couple other things. So a couple of questions, Lynn, is Dred and Harriet, when they were married, that was very unusual to have a legal marriage for mm-hmm. slaves at the time, correct or no? Yeah, it was. Um, I mentioned earlier that her owner was an Indian agent, but also a justice of the peace. And, you know, a lot of younger people don't know what that means anymore. I oh, mean, we don't. know the phrase. I'm not sure what all their duties were, but People get married by a justice of the peace. That's a legitimate other person who can marry you. Mm-hmm. So having been owned by him and Dred being owned by Dr. Emerson, they at some point agreed that she would either be sold or given, and that's still up in the air. But since it was free territory, I think they were supposed to say given, because you can at least pretend like they're your servants and not your slaves. Mm-hmm. So maybe Harriet was given to Dred, to wife, and Major Tolliver performed the ceremony. She moved in and lived with Dred under the quarters of Dr. Emerson at Fort Snelling. And I have had the privilege of being there and actually being really? in the room in which they lived. Wow. I didn't think I'd ever get to go there, but I've been there three times now wow. in that space. So... Um, it was a humble abode, but they were together as man and wife. And so, yeah, that is, it is unique because, first of all, in many places it was illegal. But they were in free territory, right. so mm-hmm. it was okay. Right. And yet when they came back to Missouri, it was not recognized. And one way I show that is when I show the documents of them filing their suits, the different ones, mm-hmm. that, it will say Dred Scott, his mark, and his mark will be an X, but actually the ones that we have show a cross instead of an X, which is interesting. Okay, that is. And Harriet has her mark, but they say Harriet, a woman of color. They do not say Harriet Scott. Right, right. So that is very telling, that they are not acknowledging that she is a married woman. 
Matter of fact, I read that they started to write it down that way, and he scratched it out, and he changed <laughs> yeah. it, who the, the clerk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the other point I want to make so it doesn't get lost is that Harriet filed her own separate petition and had her own case going through the courts. Oh, good. Because she had the exact same grounds that Dredd had. She had not gone to Fort Snelling, but she lived in Minnesota, Wisconsin Territory. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she herself had the same right, but even more purpose. And I like to say this was a strategy mm-hmm. that they were um, thinking with the two girls in the law, whatever status the mother has, that's the status of the children. And we could go back and talk about the origins of that sometime right. too. But um, since she was a slave, the girls were a slave. But if she got her freedom, the girls would be free. So should the unlikely occurrence come about that God forbid that Dredd should pass away before this was decided that it wouldn't just evaporate, but she would also then still have a case going through the courts with the opportunity and the legal grounds to be free. So they had two cases, but they were similar, so much so, and with the difficulty of financing two cases and two sets of lawyers or a lawyer for two cases, they were eventually combined. So it is absolutely uh, Dredd and Harriet Scott. And and she gets lost a little bit, and we're going to talk about her a little bit more later on in our in our interview with you. Uh, the the paper thing, because we were talking at break, how if you were a free black walking the streets or working in St. Louis, you had to have papers that stated that you were free. Yeah, you had to have a license. Right. And you had to have it on your person at all times, at all times. Um, I've been looking to see if there's anything else that we can find that says these were, this was their license. Now, we have a copy of their freedom bond. And so at this stage, we think that that might be what they carried because I can't find anything else that's a license as such. But... um, when the license was, or the freedom bond was recorded in St. Louis County, I did receive from uh, Chief Justice at the time, Michael Wolf here in, in Missouri, uh, he sent me some papers that were sent to him, and it showed the recording of their freedom in the county books. Right under that, it shows four men who were free, but they were caught without their papers. And they were lashed and sent out of the state. And that was not uncommon to happen, if that's what... uh, Right, they got thrown in jail or had to produce a a payment or were lashed, and then Mm -hmm. you had to leave. Yeah. And I often (sighs) wonder, did they leave or were they kicked out and maybe their family doesn't know what happened to them? Or, you know, I I hope at least they knew what happened. Because for them to just disappear like that would be horrific, worse, you know. And uh, they were free. <laughs> Let's keep that in mind. They were free. So that recording is right there in the county books be- below the next story under Dred and Harry getting their freedom. Because the ultimate fear was you would end up being shipped down on a paddle boat Us, yeah. <laughs> down down to New Orleans you know, and they, sold. They used to oh say, my. you know, uh, people used to tell the kids, I'm going to put you on a slow boat to China. Right. But slaves, unfortunately, uh, some of the kids were told, you know, we're going to ship you down south. Now, this would be like in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s because people were, the 
you know, children and grandchildren of slaves, um, some of whom elders might still be living in that house. Sure. And they'll go, boy, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to ship you down south. Ooh. Well, kid didn't know what that meant. Right. You know, right. we didn't even know as adults until it's like, wait a minute, why are you saying that? Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, it's the punishment. Right. And here we have had Lynch's slave pen. Oh, yeah, right down and the street And slaves on being sold on the steps of the old courthouse. Right. Well, yeah, it was a bad time. It was. Very bad time. So we get to the point where they're, they're kind of moving through the case, and they're just, you know, Dred Scott's being hired out. I'm sure Harriet's probably being hired. They're just trying to get some uh, something to keep going. And I know the Blows were also helping out at that time, too. What can you in- enlighten us about that time prior to the decision and then the decision that happened in 1857? Well, I think I would start with... Uh... 1852, when the Missouri Supreme Court said no. Um, Oddly enough, and this always intrigues me, uh, the judge here did not award Mrs. Emerson the money that she was due. Judge Alexander Hamilton. That's right. And he was a very notable man. I'm going to write something about him at some point because I've been watching him. But the thing is, uh, she won you know, that appeal, and the monies that they had been making, being hired out over the years, was being held in escrow by the sheriff, Sheriff LeBaum in St. Louis. And uh, technically, she should have gotten that money, but he said, no, let's just hang on a minute and see what else happens. So in the interim somewhere, it's coming to his attention that this might become more of a case. And so enter one Roswell Field, and Roswell Field was a local attorney whose son, Eugene Field, is a famous child poet. Their house is still down on Broadway at 634 South Broadway. It is, of course, a museum. It recently has had an expansion. And uh, Dred Scott's new attorney now has a plan. And his plan is that um, Mrs. Emerson, the widow Emerson, who has gone now to Boston to stay with her sister, find a new husband. Um, She turns her affairs over to her brother, John Sanford, who is in New York. And Roswell Field says, oh, well, I think we have a diversity case here. We have diverse locations, and one is in St. Louis and one is in New York, and now we have a federal case option. And that's how the case was reintroduced and brought back, but now, again, on a federal level, which means that the impact, however it turns out and however far it might go, will be much more impacting on all slaves and descendants of slaves, hence the Dred Scott decision at some point, yeah. It's very, very interesting because her brother, her brother Sanford was married to a Shoto. Oh, it's so Back in the day, it's, it's all this convoluted <laughs> yeah. cross-naming. Yeah, it's just, and, yeah. and he was, his father-in-law, who he was still very close to, mm-hmm. uh, he actually ran, he was part of the father's father-in-law's business mm-hmm. and ran part of the father-in-law's business and... Fur trading. Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was, yeah. and he was very pro-slavery, mm-hmm. huh. Sanford was. Yeah. It was. And this is the brother now. Right, the brother, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that is why it is called Dred Scott v. John F. Sanford because um, she just kind of moved out of the picture. Mm-hmm. The intricacies of that is that 
it really was never clear. And Dred Scott says so in the Frank Leslie Illustrated. He says, I'm not sure who my real owner was. Right. Because she just left. They were kind of abandoned. Under the supervision of the court. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Right. The sheriff's office and so forth. But yeah, they and you know that that's an interesting point because they had a taste of what freedom was like. Mm -hmm. And um and by that, I mean, they weren't constantly being watched day and night. They were hired out. She was gone. And the people here who were watching over them were actually, you know, rather predisposed to their position. Little bombs. And so, um, and I know descendants from that family, too, believe it or not. I've had a wonderful opportunity to meet so many people in, in this story. But, yeah, the sheriff was, was on their side, just to put it frankly. You know, so, the, you know, you know the Peter Blow... You know, the, the Blow name, Susan uh -huh. Blow, who is the founder of kindergarten, was a descendant of Peter Blow. Was it his Henry, granddaughter? Yes, Henry Blow was her father. Right. And he was one of the ones who actually testified on behalf of Dred and Harriet. And just about a month ago, I actually found a document that has his name listed as a witness in the, one of the court trials Seriously? here in St. Louis. Yeah, his name. And I didn't have that until this year. Wow. Yeah. In January, I found it. So, yeah, he definitely was, um, and a prominent person. You know, they did a lot of good things. But, yeah, she started the kindergarten system here. Um, Charlotte Blow was another sister, and Taylor Blow. So Taylor, Charlotte, and Henry are the three that stand out the most to me of those who did what they could, and their spouses accordingly. It was rather amazing. Another thing that I was, as I was reading that, Roswell Field and the and the Blow family were close, and they bought property down in the Carondelet area, which was, yeah. you know, we know Carondelet down by the River De Pere mm -hmm. and was right. it Alabama Street down there. But they their property when and you correct me if I'm wrong, when <laughs> Roswell Field died, um, he had some all this land, but part of that land is now Carondelet Park. Okay. That we know, mm -hmm. so yeah. it's it's kind of fascinating how all of this starts connection? to fit together. I, I love these kind of connections. My mother's from Grandolet, so I'm sort of from there too, and my great grandfather. And one day I think I'll be back on another story about him on my mother's side. He owned a house there. My grandparents, my mom's mother and father, moved in with him. weren't supposed to stay very long, but they ended up staying there probably about 35 years or more. Uh, I don't know. No, no, not quite that long. About twenty. Well, no, maybe thirty-five or forty years. Yeah, but wow. anyway, they, my mother, when she was born on Minnesota Avenue, yeah. Minnesota, make the connection, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I have roots in Crandallet too. Very, very mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. This is Arnold Strucker with Mark Langston of In Tune. We're talking to Lynn Jackson, who is a direct descendant of Dred and Harriet Scott, and Lynn, after the decision. What what have you found out as it relates to what the affect was? You know, for many people, it was a stunner, especially that Judge Tawney would come out and, you know, really kind of wipe more than he needed to wipe. He, he could have mm -hmm. just said, well, this yeah, yeah. he has no standing, case closed, right, but right. he really went and reached way beyond judicially what he should have. I call them activist judges of the 18. 1800s. Yeah, what you're referring to is the fact that this case was brought on Once Free, Always Free. Mm -hmm. It turned into 
a citizenship case where they were now arguing whether or not um, he had any standing in court. And that was what the decision actually came down on, was that Dred Scott was not a citizen, citizen. therefore he could not sue in court, dismissed. Oh, and by the way, we don't like this Missouri Compromise, which allowed every other state to come into the Union, one free, one slave, alternately. And we do not like the uh, Northwest Ordinance, which regulated no slavery in the free territories, more or less west of the Mississippi, to get a picture. We don't think Congress had the right to establish that law, so it's no longer a law. So now you can just go wherever you want, have slaves all the way to Oregon, you know, uh, Washington, California, whatever we, wherever we went, we could have slaves. And that was the firestorm that really set off the abolitionist movement, gave it real impetus. And so that was one thing. Um, For those who like to do research, if you can get your hands on what is called the Session Error Papers, S-E-S-S-I-O-N, Session Era, E-R-A, Papers. I stumbled across them years ago, and I was, like, so fascinated because the decision was on March 6th, and on March the 7th, 8th, 9th, and thereafter, newspapers were ablaze with the after effects, as we were asking about. The North, of course, was furious. The South was very happy and content with themselves um, because... First, of course, um, abolitionists, there's a difference between a person that wants to end slavery. You want slavery to end, you're looking for a way to make that happen, and possibly over time. Mm -hmm. Graduated, understood. But an abolitionist says, no, this needs to be done today, if not yesterday. And that's why they were so fiery. That's why you have a John Brown who had the raid on Harper's Ferry. That's why you had a William Lloyd Garrison who, after being uh, caught um, managing an underground railroad site and having that. After being caught and going to court and being fined $5,000, which to him wasn't a whole lot, but he paid it, and he said, I have just paid my license to continue doing what I am going to do. I don't think I've ever heard that distinction before between abolitionists and an anti-slavery. Yeah. That's a a very concise and interesting... Mm -hmm. And that's, distinction. That's why some people say, "Well, I'm not an abolitionist, but you know, I don't like slavery, and I want it to be gone." And and yet, you know, the the clear distinction between them is that it. Okay, I'll give you an example. I hope many of the listeners and we all have seen the movie Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, great. Be- years before I saw the movie, which, by the way, of course, is excellent. <laughs> the. Um, character who I came across that just blew me away was Thaddeus Stevens. I went, who is this guy? And uh, I was just reading his bio. I just had to sit back and just cogitate on it because it was unbelievable. In the movie, I sh- uh, Darren, his first name is Darren. I can't remember his last name. But anyway, he, he plays the, the guy with the... Um, the limp, mm-hmm. and he plays the, uh, he's on the cabinet, you know, and, and in the very end, he's the one who goes home to his servant, slave servant, um, and uh, it's not clear if they're married or not, you know, but, but that's his woman, 
and and it's that black lady in his house it's his woman but in reality though he he did all these marvelous things he was one of the people who helped uh, write the 13th amendment that ended slavery and everything but he in the movie you see him so adamant and um confident and he says things and he's funny and he's witty but he's so dogged determined and that was the abolitionist spirit because as soon as things would happen he was ready to move on move on we got to get this done we got to get this done and so uh that that was kind of an example of what an abolitionist spirit is it's like between him and john brown you have gradations in there but it's a now thing that has to happen that's very interesting Mm -hmm. so after the decision's over um dred scott's and Harriet Scott are still in St. Louis. Matter of fact, people, he's kind of on the street and people want to talk to him. He's become a little quasi-celebrity. No, actually, he's very famous nationally. <laughs> but locally, yes, right. he is. And people actually came to St. Louis to meet him. People wanted him to actually go on a speaking circuit. You know, he mentions that he could have made $1,000 if he had just gone out to speak. But that's not what he was about, and Harriet wasn't into it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he was a porter at the uh, Barnum Hotel okay. down on the riverfront. And uh, and that's where people would sometimes just come and want to stay there so they could meet him and shake his hand or talk to him. Um, part of the fact that this notoriety that he has is why he's he and his family, I should say, are on the cover of that newspaper, the Frank Leslie Illustrated of June 27, 1857. And... Um, that, I tell people, is like being on the cover of Time magazine right? back in the day. And if it was television, it'd be all over right. the news channels. And day and night, it would have been the firestorm that we have in current day. That was their current firestorm. It would be breaking news, and there would be interviews all over breaking the place. Breaking news every five minutes. Wow. <laughs> breaking news. Yeah. So how does he pass away, and how does Harriet, how does, you know, when she... When she Dies. Well, let's, let's back up before we kill him off. I don't want to do that. <laughs> okay, no, 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 because they actually get their freedom. Right? Yeah, and we haven't talked about that. Okay, well, let's, let's, we'll back up here. Yeah. Are we going to talk about how they got their freedom? Right, exactly. Yeah, Resetting that up. I'm excited to hear about it. Okay. I am, actually. <laughs> well, okay, I'm not going to be late because we've yeah. got a lot more to cover, I guess, but... In essence, um, being told back to the decision that um, we're going to throw out these laws and black men have no rights that white men are bound to respect and that these are beings, African-Americans, beings of an inferior order, so far inferior they shouldn't even relate to the white race, basically. You know, it's just horrible. These are the things that got people upset um, about the case and then all these other things were brought in. they were not ever really remanded back to Mrs. Emerson because when she went to Boston to get married, she just conveniently married an abolitionist and didn't tell him she owned slaves. <laughs> so he had no idea. Um, I actually have photocopies of many letters that were written between Roswell Field, Dr. Calvin Chafee, who she married, and Montgomery Blair, who actually argued the case in D.C. because mm-hmm. the Scots were not in Washington when this happened. Neither was Roswell Field. But Montgomery Blair. And when um, Calvin Chafee found out in the newspaper that his wife owned slaves, he was undone. 
and so much so undone that, you know, he was criticized. He was called a hypocrite. Uh, people said he was, you know, wow, you're this great abolitionist and you actually own Dred Scott. And, and he really didn't know. So the reason I reference these papers is because they literally are the handwritten letters that tell what transpired between these three gentlemen once he realized that he was the owner and in a lot of trouble. But he didn't want slaves, and he wanted them to have their freedom. And I don't even know if he ever met them. Hmm. But the reality is that between them and the letters and then with Dredd here in St. Louis with Roswell, they came up with a plan that um, Mrs. Emerson and Mr. Chafee and her daughter Henrietta through Mr. Emerson, the three of them would give up ownership and sell them to one of the younger sons of the Blow family, Taylor Blow. So Taylor Blow bought the Dred Scott family for a dollar, a dollar for Harriet, I think, and a dollar for Dred, perhaps. And now he did that with the express purpose of freeing them. Good. That was the only thing. He did not buy them to own them. He bought them to free, free them. That's wonderful. Which he immediately did. So the Dred Scott decision, again, was on March 6, 1857. Dred and Harriet... Eliza and Lizzie were freed on May 26th of 1857. That was fast. Uh, they were not going to sit on it. it. It just had to go through the, through the process. And part of that process was the fact that um, Mr. Sanford, who was taking care of things, fell ill and actually died of insanity in uh, an insane asylum early in May. Wow. And that's how it fell back in the lap of his sister. I was going to say, because he was kind of really pushing things. Yeah, well, he was being pushed, too. <laughs> Just kidding. Out of the way, dude. I'm sorry. That wasn't right. But, yeah, he died. I'm sorry. And uh, and therefore, Mrs. Emerson was faced with having to deal with this. Um, I wasn't aware of that one. That's interesting. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. So that's how they got their freedom. Okay. okay. And when I referenced that freedom bond, it was Taylor Blow that went and bought two $1,000 bonds for both adults. And uh, for that, um, they got their freedom. We've been talking to Lynn Jackson. She is, her grandfather is the grandson of Harriet and Dred Scott. Or you could also view it as she is the great-great-granddaughter of Harriet and Dred Scott. We were discussing the case. We've discussed a little bit about the background of Dred and Harriet Scott. And we're going to talk after the break in the second hour of the details after they were freed. We're going to talk also about the foundation that Lynn is president of and founder of the Heritage Foundation, the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, and some of the activities that they've had going on in the past and some things that are coming up in the future because we are coming up on the 163rd anniversary on March 6th of the decision. Wow. So that's why wow. Lynn's on the show. That's good. Thanks. It's been one fun. of the reasons. <laughs> one of the reasons. No, we're glad that you came on today, Lynn. Uh, it's, it's just been... Extremely, extremely informational and, and should really uh, prick the conscience of people who are listening about where they are in their relationship with many people around the world. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. I've been tuned. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri.